The following study is a Wednesday night lesson given by Pastor Brett Metter at Athey Creek Christian Fellowship. All right. Well, exciting times. We get to uh, begin the book of Isaiah this evening, so why don't you go ahead and turn there with me? Isaiah chapter 1. Yeah. Question. How many of you guys read the first couple of chapters in preparation for tonight? Raise your hand. Nice. That's good. That's good. That's good. I love that story of the pastor that gave the assignment, you know, to his congregation. Okay, before Wednesday night, I want you to read Mark chapter 17. And so the the congregation got got the next day or next Wednesday. And he said, how many of you guys read Mark chapter 17? And, you know, there was like a few people. (laughs) And he said, there is no Mark 17. It only goes to Mark chapter 16. (laughs) I won't do that to you guys. Uh, That's that's just mean. Um, (laughs) But... It does help, I think, to read ahead, uh, especially uh, with the book of Isaiah. There's some heady, kind of intense stuff. And I think that sometimes when you read ahead, you can kind of sort through it a little quicker uh, as we're going through it together. So uh, something just to kind of think about. Um, But Isaiah is a book that's got all kinds of highs and lows. And uh, it's a little bit like a roller coaster. Even chapter one, we will see, has some real down points and then some real up points. And, um, and that's kind of the way this book is. And the first half is mostly down. And the second half is going to be greatly up and encouraging. And uh, we, we did a sort of an introduction to the book of Isaiah on Sunday. So if you missed that, you can catch up uh, online and, um, you know, sort of hear sort of our introduction to the book of Isaiah. I think it is important as we uh, looked at what this book is sort of going to do. We looked at the person of Isaiah. We look at the passage of Scripture, what it means. We talked about the problems associated with Isaiah as far as the Bible critics and cynics. We sort of looked at some of that stuff. And we'll touch on all of those things as we continue to go through this great book, the book of Isaiah. Um, I mentioned on Sunday that there's two main divisions. Uh, some argue three, by the way. You'll, you'll come with all kinds of different things about the way you can divide up Isaiah. We're going to um, see a little uh, miniature apocalypse uh, coming up in, in just a few chapters tucked away in Isaiah. Some people pull that out as a section as well, and we'll look at that. But the two main divisions are chapters 1 through 39, um, and the theme, Judgment. Or as I mentioned on Sunday, woe, woe unto you, woe unto you. He's going to say that a lot. Um, And then chapters 40 through 66 um, is, you know, the theme is salvation and comfort. He'll say, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith the Lord of Israel. And um, we're going to see that. Um, Now, one thing you have to remember as we go through the Bible that's sort of difficult, I think, sometimes, is to remember that the chapters and the verses, you know, the numbers, of the chapters and the verses, they were introduced by a person, not by the Holy Spirit. They were introduced by a person in the 15th century. Do you understand that? So for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, there were no chapters and verses in the Bible. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm thankful for the chapters and verses. You know, we can say, turn to Isaiah 53, you know, and and it doesn't take us a half hour. Can you imagine in the Bible times uh, before, you know, or or even, you know, in in New Testament times, you'd say, uh, turn to the part of Isaiah that talks about um, Jesus and his, uh, you know, um, the, you know, the, the all we like sheep have gone astray. Remember that? And so then they get the scroll out and they're like, okay, 
Um, now, by the way, uh, the scroll uh, of Isaiah is kind of an interesting thing because um, it's huge. We'll talk about that perhaps even as we get into it. In fact, um, the, the entire scroll, remember I told you on Sunday they found the Isaiah scroll in Qumran? They found really most of the Bible there in, in the Qumran caves back in 1947. Um, they're at the Dead Sea, um, and they, they were preserved in these clay pots that were sealed. And what a great find that was. And Isaiah, in its complete t- text, was found there. But um, interesting, the scroll of Isaiah was 10.2 inches high. So the scroll itself, 10.2 inches high, but 24 feet long. Um, and if you look at the pictures online, you'll see the little tiny Hebrew writing. It makes you realize, wow, Isaiah is kind of a big book. Uh, and it's a big scroll, a uh, long scroll, 24 feet. So can you imagine us turning in our Bibles uh, if we all had scrolls tonight? Uh, thankfully, we have books. And praise the Lord, we have chapters and verses. But the reason I bring up the chapter and verse thing is sometimes I think that because the chapter breaks are there, we sort of stop And we stop reading when sometimes I think we were meant to keep reading. Um, We weren't supposed to separate certain things that are separated by chapters and verses. And something just to tuck away when you're doing your own personal reading of Scripture is don't forget those chapters and verses were put there to help us. But they sometimes, you know, like if you're reading chapters 1 and 2 in Isaiah, um, are you really getting a complete thought? And then the next day you do your devotions, chapter three, and you kind of forgot what was going on in chapter two. Some of these things weren't really meant to be divided. Um, and we'll, we'll point some of that out. The book of Isaiah, there's some kind of glaring, um, uh, I believe, um, you know, places where they probably should have broken it up a little differently. But uh, I'll, I'll give you a kind of heads up on some of that stuff. But all that to say, chapters 40 through 66 is, is really about the salvation and comfort. Um, now, we mentioned the critics and the cynics. You know, I, do, I can't even really state enough how insidious and destructive the textual criticism has attempted to be about the book of Isaiah. Isaiah and Daniel, Job, those are some of the, Jonah, those are some of the uh, books that are most targeted by Bible cynics and skeptics. Um, and um, I mentioned, you know, the Deutero-Isaiah and all that and the Trito-Isaiah on Sunday. Um, I'm not a proponent of that. I, I believe um, the, the Bible tells us that it's Isaiah who wrote it. What do you mean the Bible? Well, it's not just here. You know, it, it says in verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, who was the son of Amos. That's who, that, that's who the book is ascribed to. But also in the New Testament, the New Testament authors said Isaiah wrote, and, and bunches of, of sections of Isaiah was, would be quoted. In fact, in the New Testament... There's no other book quoted as much as Isaiah. Isaiah is the most quoted Old Testament book in the, in the New Testament. Now, it's interesting that Jesus quoted Jeremiah the prophet more than any of the other prophets. I love that because Jeremiah was sort of the, what you and I might think of as sort of the loser prophet. How many people were saved during Jeremiah's ministry? Zip, zilch, nada, nothing. Uh, and yet Jesus quoted from Jeremiah over and over again. I love that. Isaiah was, was, we might put him more in the successful category where people did listen to him uh, oftentimes. And, um, you know, uh, would, would we have signed up Jeremiah to be a, a retreat speaker at Athey Creek? Uh, the guy that was kind of the weeping prophet who was always depressed and nobody ever listened to him. Or would we want somebody big like Isaiah? I think it's great that Jesus quoted Jeremiah more than even Isaiah. 
But Isaiah gets the, the reward of the, the most quotations from um, the general New Testament uh, and the writers, including Paul the Apostle. And we'll oftentimes show you where, as we go through Isaiah, where it was quoted in the New Testament, because it's kind of fun to see those um, links, you know. Um, so uh, this destruction of the Deutero and Trito Isaiah is just simply trying to diminish um, the authority and the authenticity of the book. And not only do those people that say there's many Isaiahs, by the way, it's not just the Trito. You'll find so, so many that will even say there's seven or eight Isaiahs uh, trying to, you know, fancy dance around all these amazing prophecies that just Isaiah the prophet heard from God and he wrote it down. It's just that simple. And by the way, when people say, how could you write a book with such exact perfection uh, telling the future? Um, it always cracks me up when people struggle with things like that. Hey, if you can get past Genesis 1-1, everything else is a piece of cake. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Is it hard for God to give Isaiah the prophet, hey, write this down? Is that a hard thing for God? Uh, after saying, uh, let there be light, the sun pops into space. Uh, that's a pretty big trick. Uh, writing a book, uh, telling a guy what to write down, no sweat. Um, God do- does that, and he, I believe he did that with Isaiah. So forget these guys trying to explain away the miraculous nature of the, of the book of Isaiah. Um, I, I believe God does miracles, and this is one of them. Um, just a little history. In 1780, a German by the name of Kopp was the one who really started casting doubts or attempting to cast doubts on the book of Isaiah, uh, especially chapter 50, uh, 50. That was his main target. Um, and um, this was, you know, caused other people to start writing papers, you know, there in the, in the late 1700s. Um, and this diatribe sort of continued until 1889, a theologian named Dillage um, caved in and wrote a whole thing that really st- stuck. Much of the textual criticism that you hear today comes from that guy from the 1880s, uh, where he wrote against the book of Isaiah. But what I love is I gave you the sort of the shortcut answer to all that cynicism and skepticism. And we find that, remember, in John chapter 12, where John the Apostle quoted Isaiah twice. Both times, one time he quoted from the beginning of the book of Isaiah, one time he quoted from the end of the book of Isaiah. And he said, the same Isaiah said, and then he quoted the different section that those guys, the critics, claim are different authors. So what you have to do is say, you know, cop, uh, you know, this guy, or, or Dillage, do you guys know more about the book of Isaiah and more about the Bible than John the Apostle, who was taught by Jesus himself? Not only that, Jesus himself, his first sermon came from the book of Isaiah. If, if the book of Isaiah was a forgery, don't you think Jesus would say, mm, I'm not going to use that book? If, but Jesus must not have known. Oh, uh, wow, it just slipped past him some. That, see, that's ridiculous. If you believe, see, this, then it gets, it gets down to the point, and by the way, Jesus referred to the most controversial sections of the Bible. Jesus pointed out uh, Daniel the prophet, talked about Jonah and the big fish, all the stuff that, you know, everybody likes to criticize. Jesus said, yeah, that happened. Um, and G- Jesus talked about those things. So when you, uh, those of you that are college students and those professors saying, Jonah and the big fish never could have happened. Excuse me? Um, Jesus said it did. So do you know more about Jonah and the whale than Jesus? And you say, well, Brett, what does that accomplish? Well, at least the guy has to say, I think I'm smarter than Jesus. And maybe some of the students will go, mm, that's something weird here. Something fishy going on. Um, 
Get it? <laughs> Fishy? Well, <laughs> all that to say, uh, Bible criticism, man, it's, it's uh, alive and well. And you know, here's the sad thing, honestly, is it's not just, you know, Berkeley uh, that's talking like this. It's um, George Fox. I'm just going to say it. There, I said it. George Fox. Their theological department uh, hurts me when I hear what they're teaching. You know, if you want to go to George Fox and have great theology, don't go to the theology department. Go to the engineering department and the math department. (laughs) That's what I'm told by the students. I'm like, yeah, uh, those guys, they understand logic and, um, and, uh, you know, reason. Uh, but sadly, a lot of universities, and, and well, Brett, why are you calling out George Fox? Because I think there's a lot of parents that send their kids, you know, Bible-believing kids to some of these Christian universities and then wonder why their faith is shaken or even non-existent. And they become, here's the term in Portland, irreligious. Why is that happening? It's because they're, they're not educating. They're indo- there's an indoctrin- indoctrination that's going on that I'm deeply concerned about. And I know there's still a few colleges and universities out there that are still trying to hang uh, with uh, solid theology, but they're few and far between. And it's not just the colleges and universities, it's the seminaries. Have you ever heard of seminaries uh, referred to as cemeteries? And the reason why is because that's the place where, you know, young faith goes to die because of textual criticism and and stuff like that. And I think that um, uh, it's really sad to see what's happening and uh, a lot of people scratch their heads. Why are our kids all walking away from the Lord? Education, if you want to call it that. I'll call it indoctrination. But be that as it may, watch out, beware. Parents don't pay money for that kind of stuff. That's ridiculous. Um, so uh, Isaiah the prophet, a powerful book, very controversial book. It's been under great scrutinization. But uh, I believe it stands strongly. That's why it's still here, alive and well, uh, centuries after these wackos, Cop and Dillage, did their damage. Um, and I think it's, it's like, you know, it's like trying to shoot elephants with a BB gun. The Bible will remain. Like Spurgeon said, how do you defend the Bible? Defend the Bible. How do you defend a lion? You just let it out of its cage. It'll do its work. And that's, that's the Bible. It's, it's going to stand. And it, the Word of God will remain forever. Uh, so you can be a goofy college if you want to. Uh, you'll be long gone, and the Bible will continue to remain. That's the, that's the beauty of it. Now, Isaiah ministered over a—there's a bit of debate. Uh, it depends on how you view the reign of each king and how long each king reigned. And then also, uh, when did Isaiah die and which king under— uh, uh, was, was Isaiah under when he died. And um, when you piece it together, some say 58 years, others say 64 years. Uh, but, it, but either way, it was a long ministry. You know, um, when you, when you, especially when you think of life expect, uh, expectancy by Isaiah's time was uh, decreasing exponentially. Um, Isaiah had a long and uh, full ministry. Um, so, you know, it, it seems from uh, the, most scholars agree it was around 762 BC um, to 698 BC, about 64 years uh, at, the, at the longest. And we get a little bit of that from verse 1, where we read it on Sunday. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Um, Now, being the son of Amos, he's not the same Amos 
of the minor prophets, different guy, different time period, um, and different letter, uh, S and Z. <laughs> but but uh, we really don't know for sure who this Amos was. But there are some interesting things about tradition. And when I say tradition, the Jews in their writings uh, and their commentaries, uh, they have things that they write about Isaiah. Whether it's true or not, we, we have to kind of take with a grain of salt. But um, some argue that Isaiah was the cousin of King Uzziah. Remember, Uzziah was mostly a good king. Um, but tradition tells us that, that Isaiah was related to Uzziah. And, and that's why he had sort of a royal blood and he had access to kings throughout his ministry, unlike uh, some of the other prophets. Uh, Isaiah had access that was, uh, that was important. In fact, some argue historically that he was not only, um, um, you know, uh, royal, but maybe a man of certain rank. He had sort of a stature and a rank among Jews. Um, now, um, uh, like I mentioned on Sunday, his death uh, was, again, according to Hebrew t- tradition, that he was killed by Manasseh. Remember, Manasseh was the son of Hezekiah. Hezekiah is a good king. Uh, Manasseh was the worst king in Israel's history, and he sawed him in half with a wooden saw, according to uh, Justin Martyr, who wrote uh, history as an ancient guy himself, wrote about nearer history to his time than our time. Uh, brutal, brutal way to go. Uh, but I believe that, like we talked about on Sunday, that's what's being referred to in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37, where, remember, the hall of faith. And it says that, that, um, that they despised and, and killed the prophets, and some were sawn asunder. Um, many believe that uh, Hebrews eleven thirty-seven is talking about Isaiah the prophet, who was killed, m- martyred for his faith. A few things just to make notes of. Um, Isaiah was a contemporary of Hosea and Micah. Um, Many have noted that there's a lot of parallels, actually, between the vocabularies of Isaiah and Micah. Maybe they were uh, friends, and they hung out together, because you hear them say very similar things, and there's some interesting speculation on that. Um, I mentioned on Sunday that Isaiah is the pinnacle of Hebrew uh, language, he employs every rhetorical device known to the, the Hebrew uh, language. You know, he uses uh, epigrams and allegory, metaphor and simile and all that stuff. And he uses it quite eloquently. Um, I mentioned, you know, the New Testament. Isaiah is uh, mentioned by name as a person 22 times in the New Testament. So he's a major character, even in the New Testament, as he's being referred to just as a man. And he's quoted tons in the New Testament. And uh, like I said, Jesus preached his first sermon from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Pardon me, Isaiah 61, uh, verses 1 and 2. That's where Jesus preached his first sermon there in Luke chapter 4. So that's kind of the stuff you need to know. Um, Now, he's going to get out of the gate really fast. Uh, He's going to hit us hard, right between the eyes. Are you guys ready? Strap on your safety belts. Here we go. Verse 2. Hear, O heavens... And give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib. But Israel doth not know, uh, uh, my people doth not consider. So what we have to understand is there's sort of a judge and a courtroom scene that we start out with. 
Um, and Israel is being judged by God the judge. And who would be the jury in this case? Uh, the heavens and the earth. Give, he says, you know, hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. And, and the Lord's going to, you know, give the, the charge. And what does he say? Oh, man, you know, I brought you up as children, but you've rebelled against me. Man, the pain of a parent, the, the pain of a parent when a kid rebels, you know, um, it's, so, it's so sad to see parents who have to deal with this. And I thank the Lord, Deb and I thank the Lord all the time for, uh, you know, that our kids have walked with the Lord and have, and have done, you know, such um, uh, so well, just, just being sold out uh, for the Lord. And, and um, we feel like we're spoiled to death and we thank the Lord daily just for our kids. Um, but as an old youth pastor, uh, you know, and, and a pastor now for a lot of years, I, I've seen a lot of times where kids rebel. And man, who can say why? You know, sometimes I think it was the parent didn't really, you know, due diligence, uh, you know, as, as a parent to train and teach. But that's not always the case. Sometimes kids just rebel. It's just what happens. Even in Ezekiel chapter 18, you remember when there was a saying in all of Israel that said, our teeth are set on edge because our parents' teeth are set on edge. And so they had the saying, sour grapes, sour grapes. That's what they said. And it was a sort of a way of saying, I'm the way I am because my parents were the way I am. You know, I'm an alcoholic because my father was an alcoholic. Sour grapes, sour grapes. That's what they said. It was sort of an idiom of Israel. Well, God steps in in Ezekiel 18 and says, do not say sour grapes anymore. Um, you say our parents' teeth are set on edge, so our teeth are set on edge. Stop blaming your parents. Don't say that ever again, the Lord says. And the Lord says, the soul that sins, it shall die. That's, that's what God says. Is that any clearer? I mean, so everybody's responsible for their own sins. And, you know, you can't blame your parents. Well, I'm the way I am because of my parents. Uh, read Ezekiel 18. But at the same time, Nothing perhaps is as heartbreaking as seeing a, a child that's in total rebellion against God. And that's the image that God starts out the book of Isaiah with. Man, you're my children, Israel, but you've rebelled against me and you've gone your own way. And then he even goes further into it by saying, you know, uh, about the, he says, the ox, verse three, the ox knows his owner, the ass his master's crib, but Israel does not know uh, my, my people. They do not consider. Um, as an old, as an old farm kid, you know we had cows and sheep and horses and um, you know rabbits and quail. We had all kinds of little animals on our little farm. But one of the things animals are really smart about is who feeds them. Um, and they know as soon as you're walking out, man, the cows the cows start walking up the field as you're walking out early in the morning, and they're waiting, ready for that little book of hay you're going to throw over the fence. And uh, and they love that, and they I think they love you for that. Uh, which is kind of fun about animals. Nothing like a dog. You know, dogs are great uh, because they're so friendly and happy, most of them. But what would you do if you, um, if you came out to feed your dog and your dog, as soon as you come out, starts snarling at you? Come on, you're a golden retriever. You're supposed to be nice. Uh, you know, and you're, you're kind of bummed out. You feed the dog and he just snarls at you and you set the food down and he snarls. And then, and then you go to reach down again and he bites your hand. You'd be like, uh, are you kidding me? How would you feel by the way, if you did that? 
And then your neighbor comes over, walks over and hands him a bone and he wags his tail and he jumps and he's all happy and he, and he, gets, and he, and he takes the food and then runs up and lug, puts his head up against his leg and, and, then, and then you reach down again. How would you like that? Time to put him down. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. I'm sure we would never do that in Portlandia. Um, you know, you, you say, but that's a horrible picture. But that's the Jews at this time. That's what Isaiah is saying. In fact, it's kind of worse because an ox is noted for being dumb. Did you know the dumb as, a, as an ox is a theme that not only is modern, but it was in those days too? He, the Lord compares them to being dumb as an ox, but even an ox knows who feeds him and as stubborn as a mule. That's what the Lord's saying here. Dumb as an ox, stubborn as a mule. In verse three, the ox knows his owner and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know. My people do not consider. They don't think about where their provision and help and hope and blessing comes from, and they ignore that it's the Lord. And Christian, be careful. So many times it's easy to complain and snarl and growl about the Lord's provision. I hate my job. Well, are you sure the Lord didn't give you that job? Should you be, oh, thank you, Lord. Thanks for the job. Um, You know, I don't know if I like where I live, or I don't know if I like my car. Maybe the Lord gave you that car. You know, it's, it's an amazing thing how we can be so ungrateful and and um, we can be so happy about everything else, but when, we, when it comes to the Lord's provision, man, we become the rebellious children of God, and that's the way the Jews were. And uh, man, we can learn so much from Israel. And now, when we go through Isaiah, we're going to hear some brutal stuff about the Jews, but you have to understand, we fit right in. Our behaviors mirror, the church mirrors the behavior of the Jews, um, and we have to be careful about that. So we, we need to learn. The first thing we see is how we have to be careful not to be dumb and stubborn when it comes to being thankful to what the Lord has given us. Um, by the way, this reminds me, do you guys remember back in Deuteronomy when we were studying, oh, just a few years ago in the book of Deuteronomy, um, chapter 6, let me remind you what it said there. In Deuteronomy six ten uh, through 12, The Lord said, it shall be when the Lord thy God shall bring you into the land which he sware to thy fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which you did not build and houses full of good things which you did not fill and wells that were dug which you diggest not, vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not. And when thou shalt have eaten and are full, then beware, lest thou forget the Lord which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Man, the Lord sees this coming. He's warning this all the way back in Deuteronomy about the people forgetting that, man, you didn't, you didn't deserve these houses. You didn't deserve these vineyards and olive you know, trees and all this beautiful provision. The Lord gave you this. Be careful when you get in the land that you don't forget the Lord who provided this as, and he got you out of the bondage of Egypt. Here we are now in Isaiah, hundreds of years in the future, and exactly what the Lord said don't do, now they're doing. They've forgotten the Lord. And there they are snarling at the hand that feeds them. God forbid that we're those people. And so that's kind of how we kick off. Uh, we got heavens and, and earth, the, the jury, as the Lord is accusing the children of Israel. He goes on in verse 4. 
He says, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Some interesting phrases that make us think of other things. Uh, they have gone away backward. That makes us think of backsliding. And that's exactly what the Lord's saying. You have a, you're in a backslidden state. You were once walking with me. Now you've slid backward in your walk and in your faith. Backslidden. There's a, there's a name that Isaiah is going to employ uh, 25 times in this book. Uh, the name, he says, the Holy One of Israel. That's the first time we hear that. Isaiah likes to call God the Holy One of Israel. That's one of God's names. Um, who's the Holy One and what is the Holy One? The, the word holy means whole. You can almost put that word in there. Lacking for nothing. Altogether perfect. Holy is the Lord. And um, that's one of the things, by the way, when we get to heaven, that we're going to see the beast and the four and twenty elders, and we ourselves will join in. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. When we get to heaven, we're going to see that God lacks for nothing. We're going to be so impressed with his perfection. And Isaiah seems to already be impressed with that. And he says, oh, the Holy One of Israel. I love that name that Isaiah employs. But what have they done? They've provoked this perfect, holy God, it says here, by being a sinful nation, a people laden. Would you mark the word laden there, the Hebrew word uh, laden, if you look it up, it means of heaviness. These people are burdened heavy with their own sin. That's why I love Jesus in Matthew 11 when he says, come unto me all you are weary and heavy laden. Jesus is the one who takes our burden and puts that load that's easy and that burden that's light. But it's our own sin that's made ourselves burdened down. Um, You know, it's amazing how we can burden ourselves down with sin. And then stand around and blame God because our life is heavy. Um, It always amazes me how dense as an ox, how stubborn as a mule we can be with sin. People scratch their heads. I wonder why are my relationship with my boyfriend so bad? Well, I'm living with him and and I'm kind of, you know, we're just trying things out before we choose to get married. I'm sure he's going to ask me to marry me someday, the girl says naively. And she's wondering why the relationship's so whacked and why she feels so empty inside and why the relationship is becoming less and less fulfilling. And the answer is really simple. You're heavy laden with sin. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. God doesn't want a girl and a boy living together before they're married because that's called sin because God says it's going to mess you up. And God loves you so much. He gives you those rules. And on and on we could go. Abortion. People celebrate abortion and they're, you know, the, the, there's a whole group of people trying to argue for late, late, late term abortion. And, and, and here we have, you know, we have taken these innocent, un, you know, little babies that are unable to speak for themselves. And we continue to just say, we're going to have sex and we don't care what anybody says. So when we get pregnant and we're not ready, we'll just abort the baby. And, and that's just an evil nation that has taken up sinful action. And we wonder why we're messed up. 
We scratch our heads and wonder why, you know, there's sexually transmitted diseases all over the place. And we wonder why relationships are uh, unfulfilling. And we wonder why young people are so suicidal today. And we scratch our heads wondering, wondering, wondering. All the while, the Lord says, man, if you do this stuff, it's going to mess you up. Sin will nail you. You always get nailed by sin. Be sure of this, the Bible says, your sin will find you out. And yet, how many of us are so willing to gamble away and say, oh, I think I'm the one who's going to be the exception to that rule. And then we wonder, why am I heavy laden? Why am I bummed out? Why are these relationships going so bad? Why do I hate my job? Why do I hate my life? And all the while, there's just simple things that we have chosen to do that were contrary to God and his word. And you know, it's so sad when, when a culture just not only chooses to do stuff, but we, and then we celebrate, we've become a celebration of sinful stuff. And we parade and we march and we say, look what we can do and who we are. And all the while is the Lord is sort of looking at us like he does the Jews here saying, you're stubborn as a mule and you're dumb as an ox and you're heavy laden with sin. It's amazing to me the culture that we live in that defends abortion and defends all other forms of sin. Uh, The more we do that, I think the more miserable we will become. That's what the Bible says is going to happen, and we can track it. We, you know, we as a nation, shouldn't we be deliriously, if materialism and wealth is what makes people really happy, shouldn't we all be delirious with joy right now? I mean, we're, we're the wealthiest nation around the world, and we enjoy, uh, you know, luxury like no other. And, and yet, we find ourselves some of the most miserable people on the planet. How is that possible? The answer? Materialism is not the answer, as it turns out. And it seems like the more you have, the more you worry about it. And it also turns out that the more you have and the more luxury you have, the more you kind of start becoming open to sinful stuff. And here Isaiah, he's talking to Israel, and he might as well be talking to the United States of America. Oh, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, the seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They've forsaken Jehovah. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel to anger. They've backslidden. Well, he goes on in verse 5, Why should you be stricken anymore? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Man, the Lord's saying, you guys are a mess. Your your wounds stink. That's what he's saying there. The putrefying sores, they're infected. They stink. Like the picture here, it just doesn't get more pathetic. The Lord asks this question rhetorically that I I find interesting. Um, I've marked it in my Bible, verse 5. Why should you be stricken anymore? The Lord said, you don't have to be. Why, why should you continue with this sort of lifestyle and behavior? Uh, why should you keep doing this? And the answer, you shouldn't. It reminds me, do you remember there in Exodus? Remember um, the, during the plagues? I had a, uh, a person come up after a service just uh, last week. And they said, you know, I was reading in the book of Exodus and something really struck me. And I said, what's that? And um, they said, when... when you know, Moses sent the plague of frogs to Egypt. Um, 
Finally, you know, the Egyptians got sick of it and they said, take away these frogs, Moses. Okay, we'll let the people go. And Moses said, well, when would you like me to have the frogs leave? And Pharaoh said, tomorrow. And she just said, what in the world is going on with that? And I was like, yes, I love answering questions like this because I think there's a biblical truth there. And the answer is the Pharaoh just wanted one more night with the frogs. You know, it's so ridiculous. If I were Pharaoh, I'd be saying, get these frogs right now. Moses, do your little uh, trick and tell God and let's get these frogs out. Because the Bible says, you know, they were, there were frogs in their beds, frogs in their, you know, walkways, you know, walking, you know, squishing frogs, you know, as they, as they would walk down the street. And the, and the land stank and they had piles of dead frogs everywhere. Man, it was frogs and it stank and they'd be in their bed with frogs. Craziness. And yet Moses said, when would you like them to be gone? Tomorrow. And, 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 and that's human nature. Just one more night with pornography. One more night with infidelity. One more night with um, abortion. One more night. Oh, we know it stinks and we know it's kind of gross and we know that it will, but someday we'll get rid of it. One more night with the frogs. That's human nature right there. And the Lord's asking the same question through Isaiah the prophet. How long are you going to do this? Like, when would you like to stop? That's what he's asking here. He says, oh, why should you be stricken anymore? You don't have to be. But he says, you're sick from the head to the foot. You're, you're sick and you're wounded, bruised, putrefying sores. It just doesn't get more pathetic, this picture um, of what we're seeing painted here by the Lord through Isaiah the prophet. Well, He goes on, verse 7, your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers devour it in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in in a vineyard, as a lodge in the garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant We should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. What's going on here? If you recall, Isaiah, his ministry was largely at a time of prosperity in Israel. Because remember, when we listed the kings, we noticed that there was really only one bad king, Ahaz. And the rest of the kings were generally good kings. And remember what happened to Judah when the good kings were reigning? Do you remember what happened? Things were good. So what is he referring to here? Now, there's two opinions, and I'll give you both of them. um, And you can maybe do your own homework if you want. But Isaiah is speaking probably prophetically here, um, perhaps, about the the condition of Jerusalem, what's going to happen in the future, that it's going to be desolate, that uh, this whole description of threads is going to happen. It's going to be burned with fire. Because that did happen eventually, but not really during Isaiah's reign as prophet, if you'd call it a reign, or his season, I should say. But so some people say, well, what's he talking about? He's talking uh, prophetically, Israel, because you're sick with sin and you're unwilling to, you know, give it up and you're rebelling against the Lord, then you're going to be overthrown by strangers. Your cities will be burned with fire. Your land will be devoured in your presence. And, and, and then some might say, well, Brett, I think he's talking about the northern tribes. Remember, Isaiah saw the vision concerning Judah, verse 1. What, what are you talking about, Brett? Well, do you remember the civil war that happened early 
in Israel's history after, you know, Solomon, his reign. After that, shortly after Solomon was gone, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, remember? The, the, the nation of Israel split into two, and there was the north and the south. The northern ten tribes, the southern two tribes. The north was called Israel, the south was called Judah. And that's where Isaiah did most of his ministry, is in Judah, uh, in Jerusalem. Are you guys still with me there? So this prophecy is questionable. Maybe Isaiah was talking, some say, about 722 B.C. When the Assyrians, remember the Assyrians and Rabshakeh and that whole time? You know, when the Assyrian was the world power, they wiped out the northern tribes. Remember the northern tribes were dragged away into captivity with hooks in their noses. And and the Assyrians dragged them and And basically, largely, the Jews were assimilated into Assyrian culture, and the half-Jew, half-Assyrian became a person called a Samaritan. That's why the Jews hated the Samaritans, because they considered them sort of a half-breed of poser Jews who had a weird doctrine. And when Jesus said, we need to go through Samaria, and he goes and talks to the Samaritan woman, remember, everybody was stunned. Why would he talk to a Samaritan? Any good Jew would not talk to a Samaritan. Remember the story of the good Samaritan? The reason that story was a shocker to everybody because there is no such thing as a good Samaritan in the Jewish mind. And so for Jesus to tell this parable of a good Samaritan, what? That's impossible. They hated the Samaritans. And it's because the Assyrians assimilated that northern ten tribes. But there was a remnant of Jews that fled back down to the south during that Assyrian uh, you know, conquering. 722. But the problem with that theory, uh, and you you can ascribe to that if you want, but the problem with that is the description here includes Jerusalem. Do you know that an idiom uh, uh, used by Jews is is, uh, to call Jerusalem the place uh, where in verse 8, and it says, and the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage. We're talking about Jerusalem there. That's something you should mark and know. The daughter of Zion is Jerusalem. Um, All the Jews know that. And so the problem with this prophecy about what's going to happen is it's including Jerusalem. So some say, no, it's not 722 B.C., it's 586 B.C. Does anybody remember what happened then? Babylonian captivity, right? Remember, there were three waves of um, conquering the Babylonians towards the Jews. The final wave was 586 And that would be, of course, when Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego were taken into Babylon, and Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was wiped out. Later, 70 years later, Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, um, Bubba is what I call him for short. Um, Remember, those guys all repaired and restored Jerusalem because it was destroyed. Some would say that Isaiah is talking about 586 when Jerusalem uh, was destroyed, and the Jews were dragged off into captivity. Um, And I I personally believe that's the one that Isaiah is prophesying because of their rebellion, verses 1 through 7. It's then saying because uh, that, verses 7, 8, and 9, is talking about what's going to happen. And and there's, there's an interesting little tidbit given to us about this destruction, that it wouldn't be total destruction. Um. The Lord would leave, he says here, did you see the language? A seed of remnant back in that place. Now this is important, he says, because you will be like Sodom and Gomorrah. You would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah had the Lord not left a seed of the Jews there. 
And do you remember there were just a little tiny seed of Jews still hanging out? Even during the captivity, there was a tiny, tiny group. After the captivity, does anybody remember how many people came back from Babylon to sort of restore and rebuild Jerusalem? Just above 50,000 people. That's a pretty tiny group uh, that came back from Babylon. If you recall our study uh, of that, that whole story. But, but all that to say, the Lord says you could have been, and maybe you can imply should have been like Sodom and Gomorrah, but because the Jews, even in their rebellion, even in their sinful condition, the Lord says, I still love you. And I still am going to leave a seed, a remnant. Why? Because the Lord still had a plan for Israel. The Lord will never forsake Israel. That's why replacement theology is so whacked. When people say that God's done with the Jews and uh, it's now the church that he loves. That's just wrong teaching. The Lord loves the church, but God is not done with the Jew. He still has a promise. He's got an everlasting covenant with the Jew. And that's why he left a remnant of the seed in Israel. Okay, are you still with me? Now that's important because... um, one thing you should know about the Bible is um, Israel is metaphorically referred to as Sodom uh, many times in the Bible. Even though Sodom and Gomorrah are not Israel, um, they're referred to as that. Um, look at verse, uh, verse 10. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. What's Isaiah doing? He's superimposing the name of Sodom and Gomorrah on you know, Israel. He's, he's, he's talking to them and calling them Sodom and Gomorrah. Does anybody know what the sin was that uh, the Bible tells us that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed for? Anybody? Pride, that's right. Some people are like, homosexuality. Nope. There was homosexuality going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, of course, but it was pride. Isn't it something about that, that there's a link to uh, pride uh, in all forms of sin? It's what Satan fell in pride But Sodom and Gomorrah was lifted up with pride. And that's largely, I think, why God says, Israel, you're the new Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not just here, but um, in Revelation chapter 11, uh, there's an interesting story there. Uh, Do you guys remember uh, in Revelation chapter 11, there's a story about um, uh, these two, um, you know, witnesses. They're going to come. And do you guys remember these witnesses? You guys that read the book of Revelation, they're going to come during the tribulation period. That's, the church will already be raptured, I believe. We'll be up in heaven with the Lord. But seven years of tribulation over there, it's going to be horrible. But the Lord's going to send two witnesses that I believe are two Old Testament prophets. Maybe Moses and Enoch. Some say Moses and Elijah. I don't know. But two prophets from the Old Testament are going to show up. And they're going to start preaching Jesus in the streets of Jerusalem. And it says, all the world will see this event. How are they going to see it? Easy now, man. YouTube. Uh, You know, YouTube live. Like, like they're going to see this. The Bible says they'll all be seeing this all at once. What's going to happen? These guys will be running around Jerusalem preaching. And if anybody tries to lay a hand on them, do you remember what they're going to do? They're going to breathe fire out and they'll consume them. Uh, People will die. That's a crazy story. Habaneros. (laughs) You know, or uh, jalapenos. Uh, whatever, they're going to breathe fire. Now, the world's going to hate them. And uh, there's an interesting thing about what the Lord says there. Um, Let me just read you from Revelation 11, verse 7, speaking of those guys. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast, that's the Antichrist, um, that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, those two witnesses, and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city. Now, wait. Um, 
Come on, Brett, they're gonna kill guys and just let their bodies lay in the streets? Who does that? Huh. Oh, Muslims. <laughs> Did you know they do that still today? They like to drag bodies around the streets and stuff. That's what they do in some of these places. Um, so it's not that far-fetched to picture this happening. And all the world's gonna see this, but it says their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. Isn't that interesting? Where was Jesus crucified? Jerusalem. And here, metaphorically, the Lord says, they're gonna be drugged, these bodies left in the street of Sodom and, and Egypt, the place where Jesus was crucified. The, the idea is he's calling Jerusalem the Sodom and the Egypt. Egypt is a type of the world. So, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah is a place of, of total evil and, and destruction by God. Um, now, by the way, uh, that story gets even more weird. Um, you know, people are going to be making merry and rejoicing and giving gifts. It's going to be like Christmas. The two witnesses are dead. Yay! You know, they're going to be passing gifts along and stuff. Uh, and then suddenly, as the cameras are watching these dead bodies lie in the street, they're going to stand up alive. We're back. <laughs> Can you imagine what's going to happen there? It says, uh, after three days and a half, the spirit of life will return to them, and they will stand upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. <laughs> Wow, that's the book of Revelation. Now, I get off course here, but the point is Jerusalem is called Sodom and Gomorrah several times in the Bible metaphorically because of their sinful condition. Okay, are you guys with me on that? That'll help you with your biblical interpretation as you're going through the Bible. The Lord does that in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom, speaking to Jerusalem. Give ear to our law of God, ye people of Gomorrah. Verse 11, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or lambs or of he goats. When you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons and Sabbath, the chattel, uh, the, uh, pardon me, the calling of assemblies, I, I cannot away with. Uh, it is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. What? The solemn meeting is an iniquity? Sin? Yep. Your new moons, verse 14, and your appointed feasts, and my, it says, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Whew, this is heavy. So what's going on? The Jews, while they're doing all this sinful junk, laden with iniquity, doing all kinds of horrible worshiping of idols and all that stuff. Meanwhile, they're dutifully going to the temple and worshiping. Sacrificing lambs and bulls and lifting their hands to God and incense speaks of prayer. And God says, guess what? Your incense, your prayer, is an abomination to me. Your lifting up of your hands makes me sick. I'm full. The idea is he's full of it. He's just saying, I'm so full of your hypocrisy of sacrificing lambs, bulls, and rams, and goats. And you could care less about your sin. Boy, this is a heavy, heavy topic. Remember the old Keith Green song, To Obey is Better Than Sacrifice? It's referring to that time where, you know, 
God told through Samuel, told, told King Saul to wipe out the Amalekites completely. And um, half of what God told Saul to do, he did. The other half he didn't do. And that second half he used as a sacrifice to God. And Samuel said, what? Are you kidding me? To obey is better than sacrifice. What does that all mean? Sacrifice in the Old Testament was pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus, the lamb that would be slain on the cross. And the Jews, by just continuing in sin and blowing off the whole purpose of sacrifice, just saying, we're going to sin it up. Oh, we'll do our little, God, you want some bulls, lambs, goats, whatever. Uh, you want some incense? Okay, we'll light it up. Uh, you, want, you want to hear it? See us lift our hands? There's our hands. We're raising our hands. Um, but the Lord says, I'm sick of that. And that behavior is an abomination to me. Your new moons, your feasts, your Sabbaths. By the way, that's what the Jews to this day, hold the most holy as their festivals and feasts and new moons and Sabbaths. But God says, those things are horrible. I hate them. That's what God says. Why does he hate them? Because they were missing the whole point. They were off just sinning it up, partying down, and then sort of, you know, wiping their feet on the the mat of religion once a week or at the time of the feast or the festival, thinking they could just keep doing their junk and then, and then think God's good. Oh, we did our dutiful thing, but we're going to go back to party and see you, Lord. What a bummer it is when God's people play games with God. And I think there's sort of a New Testament counterpart to this, isn't there? For every Old Testament story, there's a New Testament truth. And I believe it's, it's, it really goes to what Paul was talking about when he said, should we continue in sin and let grace abound? He, what did he say to that? What was the answer? God forbid. Why? Because of this. He's saying, man, you know, we, we could, as, as, you know, the American church, we could just be as guilty as, as these guys. What do you mean, Brett? Well, we could be off sending it up. We can do our, our uh, you know, sinful things and, and just sort of wink at God and say, oh, so what? I'm doing this sin and I'm practicing that other thing and I'm, I'm doing all this junk. But hey, I'm saved by grace through faith. So I can just keep sinning. I'm sorry, Lord. And once a week, we'll take communion at Athey Creek and we'll come to church on Sunday. Even, hey, I'm here Wednesday night, Lord. Come on. I'm almost like a holy roller because I'm here on Wednesday night. But if we're, if we're doing this and then going out and just continuing in sin, letting sin abound, and then wiping our feet on the, the grace like a doormat, we're missing the whole point. It's the Lord's kindness that leads men to repentance. And if we're like the snarling dog who's forgotten what God has done to us, how he's fed us, if you would, grace and mercy, and he's given us every good and perfect gift for us to enjoy, and we forget that, and then we sort of go through religious motions, Paul says, God forbid. Why would he say that? Because of this. God says to the Jews, man, you're playing games with me. You're worshiping Moloch and doing all kinds of sexual perverse stuff with Ashtoreth in the, in the groves of the trees and you're doing all this junk and then you come and sacrifice a lamb and you think that's impressive to me? The Lord says, that makes me sick. This is heavy. Heavy, heavy, heavy. And I hope that we leave it there just for a second because man, we shouldn't be guilty of that. We should be mindful of what the Lord has done for us. So on the roller coaster of Isaiah, are we on a downswing right now? I would think so. Are you ready for an upswing? I always like it, the upswings. Uh, let's, let's, let's continue. 
He says in verse 16, wash you, make you clean, put away evil of your doings from before mine eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. The Lord is is saying, man, you know, um, you're a bunch of posers and here's what you really should be doing. Be washed and cleansed. Do good, have, you know, compassion for the oppressed and judge the, the idea of judging the fatherless means, you know, help them make decisions to, to bring them in and, and help the, the orphan is the idea. Plead for the widow. And then perhaps one of the, my favorite verses in the Bible, uh, there's a lot of them, I guess, but this is definitely one of them. Verse 18, the Lord says, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Wow. Come now, let us reason together. I was planning on doing two chapters tonight. (laughs) But I don't want to rush through verse 18, so I think we'll tackle that on Sunday. Does that sound like a plan? All right, cool. But that's really slow. We're going to be through the Bible in 40 years. Oh, we'll pick it up maybe, uh, but not tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you are so more than reasonable. Even though our sins are as scarlet, Lord, even though we can relate to these Jews who are being challenged so heavily here by the prophet Isaiah, we sense in our own culture in our own world where we embrace sin and we laugh and we celebrate things that you call an abomination. Lord, forgive us. I think of Daniel who really wasn't doing anything wrong, but he prayed, forgive us. He prayed that prayer of confession in Daniel chapter nine with such fervor, forgive us. We have sinned. Lord, we have to do that as a nation as well. And we pray that you'd forgive us as millions and millions of babies have been aborted, as homosexuality is celebrated, and, and um, even though your word says that it's called sin, as, Lord, we, as churches, don't want to submit to your word and call evil, evil. And, and really, Lord, as, as your word says, people would have itching ears, wanting to hear what they want to hear, but not really willing to hear the truth that in the last days there'd be a famine in the land of the hearing of Scripture. Lord, I I pray that these days we live in, that we, your church, would not be sucked into this vacuum of sinfulness. Lord, we see even as 2020 elections are ramping up, seeing people with causes that are so ungodly, seeing people that have an agenda that are so counter to what you tell us in your word. We, we see, Lord, in, in our city of Portland, human trafficking at a horrible level. We see, Lord, the church in Portland, many churches that have so far removed themselves from good doctrine and just believing your word as it is the perfect inspired word. We see colleges and universities indoctrinating our young people, even Christian universities, so many bailing from good theology. Lord, forgive us. 
especially, Lord, as we play the game of going to our churches and doing our thing. Lord, forgive us as a nation. I pray for revival in the land. I pray that you'd wake us up and that you'd help us to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Lord, even as you left a remnant there in Jerusalem, if that's what's happening, may we be that remnant. We want to see revival, but if it is the end and if the rapture of the church is coming soon, we want to be watching, ready, and waiting. But we'd also love to see a revival, awakening, Lord, where people see the error of their way and that we would wash ourselves, as Isaiah says, that we'd reason with you. Lord, you're more than reasonable to take our sins, though they be like scarlet, and to make them white as snow. What a, what a beautiful, compassionate work that you've done for us. Help us not to forget. I pray that we wouldn't just be thinking about you and your word on Sunday and Wednesday, but Lord, may we walk with you every single day of the week. I pray that we'd be tools in your hand, Lord. So we pray, whether it's here at Westland or the folks in Sherwood tonight, the people down in Salem, or the folks watching at home, Lord, convict our hearts, but do a good work. Lord, in these days of compromise and sin, Lord, I pray that we would be set apart. Lord, you tell us, come ye out from among them and be separate. Teach us what that means. So, Lord, we pray your word would do its work tonight as we go our way, and we thank you for speaking through your word by your spirit tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. To take advantage of our media ministry, we encourage you to visit us anytime at athecreek.com, where we have all of Pastor Brett's Bible studies available as a free download.